We're talking about the promise of God and that promise being kept. As a matter of fact, that's really why we're here today, right? We're here today to celebrate several things. We're here to celebrate the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. We're here to celebrate the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. But maybe more importantly, or as importantly, we're here to celebrate the fact that that resurrection became the exclamation point in God's promise. And God promised to fix what is broken. The resurrection of Christ is the emphasis of that. It's the emphatic done. It is finished, he said on the cross, right? Because it's done. Promise kept. <clears throat> well, maybe you were like me. I don't know. Some were sad. Some were mad. Uh, some were just pretty apathetic. It didn't really matter one way or another. But it's a little sad for me to watch the news on Monday, the beginning of Holy Week, and watch the Cathedral of Notre Dame uh, engulfed in flames. Um, I, it, is, it has nothing to do with uh, theology necessarily. It has nothing to do with what you think about Catholicism or their thoughts or their beliefs or whatever. It has everything to do, though, with history and culture and, and watching that building that took centuries to build go up in flames. And, and, and to just think of all of the art that's in that place. Some of the art they were able to save, but much of it was damaged or gone. Uh, to think of the history that takes place in that building. Maybe it didn't bother you. I don't know. But it bothered some people because, interestingly enough, when the president of France announced that he would rebuild or we would, they would rebuild the cathedral, he set up a, a fund, he set up a, a uh, <clears throat> charitable a, a way of giving to repair or recover what was lost, to fix, if you will, what was broken. Amazingly, in a 24-hour period, they raised 800 million euros, which is equivalent to around 900 million dollars, 24 hours. The president then announced that we will take this and we will fix the building. But guess what? Some early estimates say that probably it will take over 20 years to repair the damage done by the fire. Some things are not easily fixed, are they? Now, you might be one of those guys or ladies, and you might be one of those people that, frankly, I just have a hard time liking all the time. You might be one of those that can just fix anything. Are you, are you that person? Or you're by that person? You're married to that person who can just fix anything? I know there are people like that, right? It doesn't matter what it is. If it's mechanical, it doesn't matter what it is. They can just fix it. I don't like those people because I cannot as a matter of fact, my practice has been this. Usually, my experience has been usually I spend more money paying somebody to fix what I fixed than if I'd have just had them come originally, you know? Every time I think I'm going to save, more important than saving money, it's proving your manhood, right? Every now and then, i got to show Beth I can fix this. And then I have to go crawling to her and say, oh, we need a little extra money for somebody to fix what I fixed. But isn't it wonderful to know? Now, when God fixes something, he fixes it right. And isn't it good to know that God fixes some things rather than throwing them away? Frankly, I've also been guilty of the fact of saying, you know what? I think I'd really just throw this thing away than try to fix it. I'd really just throw it away and get another one. However, that gets a little bit expensive, right? Did you know that part of the thing we celebrate at Easter is the fact that God promised to fix what's broken? 
Now, that's a great thing. That's important because if you haven't noticed, and I know you have, this world is broken. And there's a lot of brokenness in our lives, isn't it? Our lives are broken. Relationships are broken. Homes are broken. Lives need mending. This world is sometimes stinks. It's filled with pain, really, and agony and suffering. There's death that we have to deal with. We have to deal with depression. We, we have to deal with sickness. We, we have to deal with things that seem unfair. We, we have to deal with justice and injustice and, and hatred and strife. And frankly, there's times when the world is clearly broken. Maybe your life is broken. Maybe your world is broken. Now, there are some people here today who probably think, well, Pastor, my life's going pretty good. Well, thank God. I'm glad of that. But just brace yourself. Because in general, the world is broken. Now, it's broken, and God can fix it. But here's the good thing. Not only can God fix it, He did promise to fix it. And we're here to celebrate the fact that He put His stamp on it and said, It's fixed. Now, what am I talking about? Uh, Go with me in your mind all the way back to the beginning, right? To understand the brokenness of this world, you have to go back to the beginning. Because in the very beginning, God created everything. And what did he say? He said one by one as he created things, it's good. It's good. It's good. God had created a perfect world and a perfect environment. Listen, don't give him the bad rap for the mess our world is in. As a matter of fact, he created it perfectly. I mean, so perfectly that rain wasn't even needed for things to grow. Perfect. Can you imagine the perfect temperature? God took Adam and Eve, the man and his wife, and put them in this garden paradise where everything was perfect. The the peas always grew. The corn always produced. Everything was wonderful. Everything was good. The temperature. I still hadn't figured out that. God is all wise. How he ever got the perfect temperature for a man and a woman, I don't know. I don't know how that happened. But somehow this perfect world existed. But something happened that broke it. You remember? God said to the man and the woman in this perfect paradise, I'm giving you all of this to enjoy. Only one rule. Now, how many of us would just love to go through life with one rule, right? Well, you, got, you, you had to obey more than one rule just getting to church this morning, right? You speed limits, stop signs, red lights, all those things. Well, we got so many rules. I don't even know how many we can count. The most religious of the religious Jews had, had, had these massive number of rules to keep. And yet God said to Adam and Eve, yeah, one rule. Of all the trees here, of all this fruit, everything is yours. Just don't eat the fruit of that tree. One tree out of how many multitudes? Just one. Now, isn't it amazing that they couldn't even keep one rule? (laughs) That's not surprising to me because typically we have a hard time. If you say, hey, wet paint, don't touch. Come on. Am I the only one? No. You've touched it before, right? One rule. But Adam and Eve took the fruit. And when they did, paradise was lost. And from that moment, the world was broken. Now, I can show you all of that in Scripture, but I want to just take you to what happened right after that moment. And I want you to see the incredible truth That at the moment of the fall, God immediately promised 
to fix it. He knew where the fire started. They're still trying to figure that out in Paris, right? But God knew immediately where the fire started. He knows immediately how to fix it. And he started the process immediately by making a promise that one was coming to the world who would fix the brokenness of the world. So I want to use as my text this morning, Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible or it's on your, ta- your phone or your tablet or wherever, follow along. Or you can follow on the screen. It'll be up here to help you as well. Genesis chapter 3. And let's begin reading in verse number 8 where the fall has just taken place. They've just committed this sin. They've just rebelled against God. Think we got a better idea. You know what I'm saying? And so now look what happens. In verse number 8 we read this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Isn't that interesting? Here in the beginning, God just walked among the man. There was no fear of God. Wouldn't that be neat? I think all of us have at one time or another had a fear of God. There was no fear. They just communed, just walked with each other like we do. But something happened. Watch. This day when God heard, when they heard God came, and look, watch this. They hid from the Lord they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, frankly, this is one of the, one of the most um, humorous chapters in the Bible. There's just so much here that just causes me to get a little humorous, a little LOL moments here. You know, First of all, how ironic. Who can hide from God, right? How do you hide from God? You're going to hide by, I don't care how big the trees are. I don't care how thick the thicket yeah, God comes walking through the day garden, and they're going to hide. Now, at first, that's a little humorous to me. And then secondly, it's like, oh, wait a minute. We do that all the time. <laughs> we, we try to hide from God. We hope God didn't see it, you know? God, we didn't see it. I never, never will forget hearing the story of a man who was just plastered one day, just plastered, laying in a ditch, just, just didn't know what was going on. And a, a pastor came walking by, and at, the guy said, Preacher, will you please pray for me? And the pastor looked at him and said, Well, I can see you're in pretty bad shape. I'll pray. And so the man said, Thank you. And they sat there, and the pastor began to pray. And he said, Dear God, will you please help this drunk? To, he said, whoa, 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 don't tell him I'm drunk. Well, <laughs> how many times have we done that, right? Well, don't, don't, tell him, don't tell him this. We hide from God. I'm sorry, that was a poor one. Anyway, verse 9. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Now, they've been naked, right? And that's another whole message, another whole story. I'll just give you something for your kids to ask you about when you get home. <laughs> okay, so he says they were naked. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Then he asked him, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Did you break the one rule? I only gave you one. Did you break it? The man replied, it's the woman's problem. It's her fault. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And hence men have been using that excuse ever since, right? Her fault. If she she had just told me, I would have turned where I was supposed to and we wouldn't be lost right now. You ever heard that one? If she had just told me, if it's her fault. Well, but now wait a minute, ladies. Before you stick her too much, look at the next verse. 
Uh, the Lord asked the woman, verse 13, what is this you've done? Is it true? The woman said, the devil made me do it. Well, it reads a little different in your Bible, but that's basically what it's saying. This serpent deceived me and I ate. It's his fault. The devil made me do it. Have you ever heard that? Flip Wilson was the first one I ever heard use that phrase and coin that phrase and use it in a funny way. The devil made me do it. And we've been doing it ever since. Everything that happens, we blame on the devil. Now listen to me. The devil is an enemy. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I understand all that. But let me tell you something. We give the devil way too much credit. Most of the time, it's not the devil. Guess who it is? Y-O-U. The devil made me do it, she said. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent... <clears throat> Because you've done, does anybody, wait, does anybody have a little pause here that we're talking to an animal, right? We're talking to a serpent, a snake. Well, you've talked to snakes too, I imagine. Probably didn't say what he's saying. But anyway, watch this. <clears throat> he said, to the serpent, uh, because you have done this, by the way, he didn't argue, did he? The serpent did tempt Eve. He said, because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly. So evidently this serpent was standing erect, right? You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And now you're going to all say amen at this one. I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. Any lady say amen there? I mean, I know some people really like snakes. I get that. And, you know, they are beautiful animals. And I understand that most of them are harmless and they do good things. But for most people, snakes crawl. And so we are at hostility. There's some truth here, right? But then he adds something I'm going to come back to. He adds another thing. He says, I'll put out this hostility between your offspring and you. And he will strike your head. Notice that he is capitalized there. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I'm going to come back to that because that's going to be something very important. But let me read on and finish this story. He said to the woman, <clears throat> I will intensify your labor pains. Now, for the first time in this world, we see pain beginning to be mentioned. <clears throat> Up until then, no pain. Everything's perfect. But now pain comes into the world. I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife, I think I'm going to just not touch that one. Okay, you, you do with that one what you want to when you get home. But I find that kind of interesting. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Watch this. The ground is what? Cursed. The ground is cursed. Now, would you please see something? I don't have time to really build on this right now. Maybe we can later. But he says, because you listen to your wife, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because what? Of you. You will eat from it by means of your painful labor all the days of your life. Because of whom? You. So can I just say, I wish I could unpack this more. There's more to it, I know, than this simple statement. But may I just say <clears throat> that all of this stuff, this brokenness that we tend to blame on God, God says, no, it's on you. This is all you. I'm, I'm talking about those moments when we say, why would a loving God this? Why would a loving God that? No, 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 no. It's not the loving God. It's the brokenness of sin and the death of sin. It is this curse that's been talked about. This world is broken. No longer perfect environments. No. 
It's broken, he says, because of you. Now watch this. He says in verse 18, It will provide thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by what? The sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. Now here's a wonderful promise. Until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. Well, you're dust, and you'll return to the dust. And Adam's thinking, I thought we would live forever. What's this? You remember I said that in the day you eat it, you will surely die. Now, it's interesting to me because we find in Scripture <clears throat> that death begins to enter in at this moment. And in fact, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we're going to see two deaths immediately. The first is the death of Adam and Eve. Now, first they died spiritually, right? They died spiritually. There was a separation between God and man. You see, that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. That's what sin does. Sin puts a barrier between us. You see, sinful man cannot approach holy God. In fact, the scripture says that God is angry at sin every day. And that there is a, a holiness, a, protective, a protection of his holiness because sin cannot be in his presence. There was a spiritual separation between God and man. There was no way anymore for man to reach, the, reach to God. In fact, fellowship was broken such that later on, you know what we find? We find that God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and put two angels, two cherubim, two holy creatures to guard the way of the garden so that man could not pass. What all does that mean? What does all that mean? It means that God was saying, I'm sorry, but you die spiritually. Romans says the same thing. The New Testament says the same thing. It says because of our sin, we are separated from God. He died. But you know what? It's also interesting. Read chapter 4 of Genesis on your own time. Maybe go do that this afternoon, maybe later. You know what you find in Genesis 4? Interesting what you find in Genesis 4 is it has this listing of men. And here's what it says after each of those men. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Every man mentioned, it says, and he died. Why? There's a point. God kept his promise. In the day you eat it, you will die. And this world is broken. And so he says in verse 20, the man named his wife Eve, which means living. Isn't that interesting? Oh, man, I, I only have a few minutes. I don't, can't dwell on this, but think about this a little bit later. Isn't it interesting? He named all of the creatures, all of the beasts of the field, except the woman. When Eve was presented to him, he just said, wow, <laughs> that's what I've been looking for. But here at this moment, after pronouncing this curse, he names her Eve, meaning living, because it says she what? Because she was mother of all the living. Now, I said, I said there were two deaths. Okay, there was the death of Adam, where Adam and Eve will put them together. But then there's another death that occurs in Genesis 3 also. Look at verse 21, and I think you'll see it. The Lord God, it says, made clothing. Remember, they're naked. They're ashamed. So the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man. Skins. What kind of skins? We don't know, honestly. You know, in my you know, poetic world, I would make it a lamb. But we don't know that. Could have been anything. But God took an animal of some kind, and the animal died, and the skin of the animal was made into clothes. And he clothed the man and his wife. God clothed them. God took the initiative 
took an animal. Can I use this word? Sacrificed the animal so that the man could be clothed. Well, hold on just a minute. There is so much good stuff there. Because you see, that started something very important that we see in Scripture. And we see a principle that runs all through Scripture. And the principle is this. We see over and over again the innocent dying for the guilty. Wait a minute. The, the lamb, the goat, the, the deer, <clears throat> the buffalo, whatever it was that died, he didn't do anything wrong. It was Adam that did wrong. It was Eve that sinned, not the animal. So the innocent animal had to die to cover the guilty man. <laughs> you don't have to be real smart to figure out that one, do you? Here was where God was demonstrating the beginning of his promise. He said, I'm going to fix it. And one day, I'm going to send an innocent sacrifice who's going to die for the guilty of this world. And, of course, he's talking about Jesus, the innocent dying for the guilty. Why? So that he can clothe us in righteousness. Whoa! What an incredible thought that God would die for us. And so he clothed them with skins to provide this way. So now let me go back to verse 15 because here's where this is going to set up the rest of where we're going for the next two weeks and yet very important to see today. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> he says, he says there, I will put hostility between, this is when he's talking to the serpent, remember? He says, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says this, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What in the world does that mean? I listen, did any of you see The Passion of the Christ, that movie? You know, my favorite scene in that movie was when the serpent came out, you know, and it stomped on him. Watch this. Here is the first promise of God. I'm going to fix what's broken. I'm going to send one, a Messiah, a Savior. And, and, and you, the serpent, now he's not talking to the snake, he's talking to Satan. He says, you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to nip at his heels. But he's going to stomp your head. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? Remember when Jesus came to the earth and Satan was after him? Remember? Nipping at his heels. He does say that Jesus was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. It tells us that he did indeed um, uh, suffer striking at his heel. But watch this. When Jesus went to the grave and everyone in the wicked kingdom celebrated, they missed one thing. Three days later, he would rise. And when he rose, he crushed the enemy's head. It's done. He's finished. The enemy, Satan, is cooked. He's toast. He's done. It's finished, Jesus said. What's finished? The promise of God made all the way back in the beginning, kept. Promise, kept. Now, what does that mean for us? <clears throat> that means that for us, we can have reconciliation with God. It means for us that we can be fixed. <laughs> What's broken in our lives can be fixed. Your marriage that's broken can be fixed. Your life that's broken can be fixed. Your emotions that are broken can be fixed. 
We can be fixed. That, that relationship that was broken with God can be fixed. And we can have fellowship and we can have companionship and partnership with him every day. And we can walk with him and talk with him just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Why? Because his promise was kept. Here's the last thing I want to say. To kind of just put a takeaway, a bow, maybe if I could on the whole thing. Remember this thought. Jesus was broken to keep the promise. The only way God could keep the promise that was made in the garden years ago was for Jesus to be bruised, beaten, and broken. Willingly giving his life, watch this, the innocent. People who saw his life testified as eyewitnesses and said, he had no sin. Why are they killing him? He's not the one who sinned. We're the ones who sinned. The innocent died for the guilty. Promise kept. Pray with me, would you? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, thank you for this reminder that you came to fix what was broken. And I'm so glad, dear Lord, that you did not decide to just throw us away or to abandon our world and all of its sin and death, decay and death, suffering and sorrow, pain and depression. But you decided to fix it. And God, we're here today to celebrate the moment, the day when you kept your promise and Jesus burst forth from that tomb victorious over sin and death, over our enemy Satan and said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. <laughs> Thankful for that day when Jesus burst from the tomb And said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, will live. You see, that penalty of death still rules and reigns, and we die. And we don't like it. But death now may well offer, usher us into the presence of the God of heaven. Why not cry out to him today? It's not by accident you're here this morning. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe God intended you to hear that he made a promise. And the promise was to fix what was broken in your life and in this world. And if you'll trust him, if you'll yield to him, if you'll turn your life over to him, he'll fix it. How do I know? We're here today celebrating promise kept. God always keeps his promises. So cry out to him, Lord Jesus, I give you my heart. I give you my life. I invite you to be my Savior and Lord. And I invite you to live your life in me. Come fix what's broken. Thank you, Lord.
Amen.